0: The pleasure of getting together with one of my uh, old junior high friends. We went to junior high, high school together, kept in contact, of course, in our adult life. And I met up with him, and he was telling me about how he competes at an elite level in these things called Spartan races. And uh, I might get the specifics wrong, but from what I understand, you could do like a Spartan sprint, which is like a baby activity, apparently, (laughs) or you could do the longer ones these real races and his goal was to run three of them that's what he signed up for the rules were that if he finished three within a certain period of time he would be awarded I think I think it's a medal Um, and he's about to run his last one and this guy was telling me that he was excited he was determined to finish what he started knowing full well that he will face certainly some degree of physical suffering in participating because in the last race, the nails of his two big toes ripped off. I know this, you know, not not a nice thing to think of on a Sunday morning. His feet were bloody and the rest of his feet got injured. But nevertheless, he's going to finish off his last one. He knows he won't be able to train as hard or finish the race uh, as quickly as he would like. But nevertheless, he is entering into his 13-mile race that has 30 obstacles with his eyes set on the reward. He is fully committed, determined, delightfully so, ready to persevere no matter what. In many ways, apart from the whole big toe thing, Maybe this is actually a great picture of what is called for in the race of the Christian life. We see this in our passages today, which can be found in Second Timothy, chapter two. I invite you to turn there with me now. Second Timothy, chapter two. And we are finishing off chapter two, verses one to seven. <clears throat> As we looked earlier in the first two verses we noted that this young pastor, Timothy, is called to stand fast. He's called to stand fast, being strengthened by Jesus Christ, and also passing on the message of Christ. And then today, as we finish off those verses from verses 3 to 7, we see that Paul calls him to stand fast, being fully committed to Christ. That is, being fully committed to Jesus Christ. You can imagine that it was such a crucial time to call Timothy... Paul's disciple to stand fast. Paul the Apostle, if you remember already, he was already jailed for the faith. History shows that he was close to his own execution, maybe just one, maybe two years away from being beheaded by Emperor Nero. But it certainly wasn't only Paul that was suffering. It was scores of Christians in Rome, actually, who were being rounded up and murdered for political reasons for being Christians. To... Uh, Timothy, he wasn't in Rome, he was in Ephesus, quite a good distance away, which is in modern day Turkey, but nevertheless, he was still in the Roman Empire, where Nero was governing. He had legitimate reasons to think that such persecution might one day come his way, and so here is Paul writing into that situation by word, holding himself out as an example, calling him to basically hold the line. You look there at chapter 1, verse 8. Look there chapter 1, verse 8. He says there, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Certainly must not have been easy to stand, to hold the line for Timothy at his post there. Again, we already noted the, the persecution from the outside. His mentor is already locked up and by all appearances will die in jail. He says, I have finished the race past tense. He's already being poured out like a drink offering. He's going to die, it seems there, as he writes in the letter. But the challenges don't just come from the outside. The challenges come from within, right? And he's making it all the more complicated. Paul and Timothy were being abandoned by the very ones that they ministered to. If you just go and read the whole letter in the afternoon, Paul writes about this in a couple different occasions in this letter, naming people, meaning that probably Paul and Timothy both knew the people that were abandoning Paul and turning away, and also turning away from Timothy. This would have been personally taxing, having those you give your life to leave for bad reasons. Not only that, though, thinking of more problems from within, there's false teaching going on. So here, Timothy not only sees his mentor about to die, not only are people abandoning him, but within the church, too, people are teaching false things, false doctrine, false gospels, and so Paul calls them to hold the line. Friends, you realize that each and every single one of those things, the persecution, the abandonment, the false teaching, and having to deal with them, rebuking, and teaching with all patience, is enough to send some fleeing from the Christian ministry. Even the strongest of pastors and Christians might be a little bit fearful, a little bit frantic, and a little bit discouraged, maybe a little bit bitter. Certainly a little bit impatient, which is why Paul calls him to great patience. But it's again here, though, that I think Paul brings some calm into what many might consider a storm. In a fatherly way through this penned letter, holding him out as an example, Paul actually draws near to Timothy, offering courage for the circumstance, saying, share in suffering like a good soldier in Jesus Christ. Look there at 2, 1 to 7. I'll go ahead and read that. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. And then here's our passage today. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's continue there. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with change as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Thinking of Timothy's experience, certainly this would have been sobering, right? Mentor in jail, about to die, etc., being called to suffer as a good soldier for Jesus Christ. But I think also it would have been compelling It would have been rousing and courage instilling, encouraging. It's important to remember, once again, if you're wondering, like, how in the world is that encouraging? How is that rousing? You know, we got to remember, again, that we all suffer for what we value and love. It's something that I've been repeating since since we started 2 Timothy. But, uh, and we suffer for what we love in such a way where suffering doesn't really seem like suffering. Suffering doesn't really seem like suffering when you are suffering for the things you love and value. Oftentimes, not always, oftentimes. Take Bill Gates, for example. When he was programming Windows, something that I learned, he would program for hours and hours and hours, and he would do so much programming that he would actually fall asleep on his computer. He'd sleep for like an hour or more, and then then, however long, and then he would wake up and then just get right back to coding some more. What does he suffer? Well, to some, and maybe even to him in the moment, he suffers sleepless nights for what he values, for what he thinks is of greatest good. I don't know if he thinks windows is of greatest good, but you get my point. Take the sous chef, the chef number two, called on to help the master chef make up, you know, an amazing dinner and dessert that will go on into the early hours of the morning. What does the sous chef suffer? She, he might suffer the tiredness the frenetic pace, the adrenaline rush, and the adrenaline crash for what she loves and values. Take the mother and father of a newborn. Think about Oscar and Erica. They are right now suffering little sleep, the discomfort of a crying baby. And then you can think about parents in general, suffering hard and long in their work, for example. And what they practically sacrifice for their children. Right? We suffer gladly at the end of the day for what we love and value. What we give our allegiances to. It's simply par for the course. For Timothy, he is a soldier of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul calls him to right there. A soldier for Christ Jesus. I mean, talk about who he gives his allegiances to. There's nobody else worthy of giving his allegiances to, and so Paul and Timothy both love Christ and are willing to suffer for Christ. If you're visiting with us, the reason why is because we believe that Jesus Christ, Paul and Timothy believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Savior, the chosen one of God to deliver sinners from their sin, to alleviate them from punishment and condemnation, all because he loves us. That's who they suffer for. You see his lordship not by judging us immediately or we see his lordship in refraining to judge us immediately but then instead to save us in his great love. He had every reason, the Bible says, God had every single reason to judge us immediately for our rebellion against him. God created us to be in a relationship with him, loving relationship. God as a perfect father drew near to his people but his people turned away from him. They didn't care. We exercise, so to speak, our own lordship in God's kingdom. We, and in so doing, we actually set our throne against God's throne. So, right, God has every right to move to judge. But what he does, all by his grace and love and mercy, is he delays judgment because he offers salvation. In so doing, he sends his eternal son. Here we're getting to Christ. He sends his eternal son to take on life. Take on flesh. Jesus Christ lives the perfect life we should have that was demanded of us, even though we failed. And he does that perfectly. He dies on the cross, bearing the wrath and the sin that his people deserved, even though we should have died. And why does he do this? He does this so that all who would ever turn from their sins and believe on him would have a life. They would be citizens of his kingdom. They would be forgiven on account of his work. And this is what Paul and Timothy suffers for. They suffer for the crucified Jesus. They suffer for the resurrected Christ. Because in his resurrection, he showed everybody that the death penalty no longer hangs over those who turn and believe. Who would not want to suffer from the world for the great salvation that Christ offers all who would repent of their sins and believe? So if you're visiting with us, exploring Christianity, I hope you see here that for the Christian, we think that this is actually worth suffering for. And and God calls all of us to, calls you to repent of your sins and turn to him and you will know forgiveness of sins, adoption into his family, reconciliation with God, all on account of his grace and mercy and nothing by your works. So we see here that we are saved in Jesus Christ and his life, his death. His resurrection. This is the gospel again that Paul and Timothy and all Christians are to give themselves to. We are all soldiers of Christ Jesus. Of course, not strapped with you know, the glocks and the swords as if we could physically compel people to come into the kingdom. You know, that's not what he means when he says soldiers of Jesus Christ. Don't think that. But Christians are equipped. They are handed, given... The message and the task to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The decree of the king that says everybody who repents and believes on me will now be saved. That's what we herald. That's what we deliver to the ears of all. So keep that in mind, right? With the allegiances pledged to Christ, the Lord and Savior. Having received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Having been adopted into his family... Where we are brothers and sisters of Christ, with God as our Father, having been given this new message to spread the gospel, so Paul calls his son in the faith, Timothy, to share in suffering. Like a good soldier in Christ Jesus. And in our passage today, again, in our passage today, main point, we see that the Christian is to be fully committed to Christ. Fully committed to Christ. Again, This is not just for Timothy, not just for the pastors, for everybody. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24. He says to all of the disciples, If anyone, not just those who are called to the ministry, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Of course, for many of them, it would be, in fact, a metaphorical cross. Not all Christians will get crucified, but there is Jesus walking on his path to the cross to die. And he says, if you want to follow after me, many of you will experience the same fate. Many of you will certainly suffer, but it is good. It is good. For the rest of our time, let's see three ways in which Christians are to be fully committed to Christ. Three ways in which Christians are to be fully committed to Christ. The first is being single-minded. Being single-minded. Look there at verse 3. He says there, we've, we've seen this numerous times here. Share in suffering. Or more like share with me in your suffering or share together in suffering or bear your part in this suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Metaphor is used elsewhere in scripture is relatively common. Paul uses of Timothy and 1 Timothy. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And he wants him to be single-minded. Look there at verse 4. Look how Paul expands this soldier analogy. Paul says, no soldier... Gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So here he employs this analogy. As a father giving his son kind of proverbial wisdom, he employs this analogy to teach him something. The Christian is called into the service of God and is to be always ready, single-mindedly so, to serve his Christ. This readiness to be uh, single-minded, always ready to serve is, is captured in one translation, which some of you guys might have, the NASB. It says, no soldier in active service, etc., etc. The, the, the active service there captures this always ready, also the single-mindedness here. The soldier is always ready to serve at the command of the king. He goes into all of life. He even conducts all of his life with a certain readiness, being poised for action. And being in active service, the soldier of Christ refrains, right? He refrains, it says, from getting entangled in civilian pursuits. I think here he's just talking about worldliness. He's just talking about worldliness. Now I know some of you guys might be thinking in terms of the particulars, like you want to draw one-to-one Equations, what does it mean? Like, am I engaged in a civilian pursuit if I am working a regular job? Am I engaged, in, if I entangled in civilian pursuits if I uh, am uh, you know, doing life regularly in the way that other uh, people of the world do life, like the regular stuff of life? Here, I think he's talking about worldliness. He doesn't want the Christian to be of the world. Christians are not to let their service to Christ be hindered by the allure of the world. We are to guard our hearts from the tentacles of the world and the pleasures that it offers. Again, does this mean we as Christians can never do regular things that like all human beings do, regardless of what they might believe, regardless if they reject Jesus? So, for example, can the Christian watch the Mandalorian? Or frozen too, you know. Can we actually do those things? Can we appreciate the taste of good food? Is that is that getting entangled in civilian pursuits? Can we live in you know that house or drive that car? You know what's interesting is that Paul actually doesn't get into the particulars that quickly. He actually doesn't get into any, any particulars necessarily here in this passage. I think because he knows that the issue is so much bigger than the particulars. We know that Paul still did regular things that people did. You know, So he, he was a tent maker, for example. He had a regular job. We know that other Christians were encouraged to use their homes. In other words, that they had wealth, so much so that they had homes, so, and they were to use their homes for the church. We know that other there was a Christian woman mentioned in the book of Romans and in, in, in the book of Acts who was a dealer in purple goods. She had a business. Dealing with fabric. Some of you guys like thinking about style and fabrics, and maybe that was her. We know, too, that Christians were not to refrain from eating certain things, but could, in fact, enjoy and eat food. Paul here doesn't get to the particulars. He's not really saying, this is what a civilian pursuit is. But he does, though, get at our approach to these things, right? He doesn't speak on particulars, necessarily but he gets at our approach to the particulars. In this analogy we are exhorted to not let the particulars of the world distract us from the single-minded devotion to Jesus Christ. He says don't let he effectively says don't let our hearts get entangled intertwined with the world to the point where we are of the world or become of the world. If that would happen then we wouldn't be serving at the pleasure of the Lord. We and you would be serving at the command of the world. But of course, in the analogy, what is the reason for the soldier's single minded devotion? Look there. What is the reason here? Don't get entangled in civilian pursuits since. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is what? It is not asceticism, it is not stoicism. It is because I want to please Jesus. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That is Christ, the king, who calls soldiers, enlists them into his service. This here makes us check ourselves. It hopefully should be encouraging us to check ourselves. And our relationships to the things of the world. What's interesting here as a Christian, I'm sure you guys know, uh, there is not only this this, uh, call to don't let yourself get entangled, But to sort of complicate things more, to make it more challenging, you know, sanctification is a process. There's also the process of disentangling ourselves from being of the world as all of us were, at least as most of us were, who were converted at a later age. There is the, don't get entangled by. And there's also the, let's disentangle you. Friends, did you know that you can actually become distracted in such a way By your things, the things in your house, the things in your head, in such a way where we end up serving two masters? And unfortunately, some have gone on to show themselves to not be serving the one and true master. You can, in fact, get too distracted by rest. You can, in fact, get get too distracted by entertainment. This is Hollywood, the capital of entertainment in the world. I don't know if you guys have lived in different areas of the world, but you know when you live in Washington, D.C., um, things, people might struggle with certain things more intensely than other places in the world. The same goes for this area in Hollywood. And I think I realized that. I used to be a personal trainer working 24-hour fitness, and you had a certain clientele. Um, let's put it frankly. You know Many of, many of uh, the people were after, let's say, vanity. When I would go work out in Washington, D.C., when I lived there, the people dressed very differently. Instead of wearing hardly anything, they wore things, oftentimes much more clothed than people out here, that bore what, comp, what bureau they worked for. The FBI, the DEA, they, they wore these things regularly to work out. What are they doing there? It's, in some ways, it could be a revelation of what they struggle with. Maybe what they're putting their hopes in. Maybe what they find their identity with. Here in Southern California, something very different. But you've got to realize that here in In the Hollywood area, in the Los Angeles area, we struggle with certain particular things or maybe even entangled with certain things. Comfort, entertainment. Some of us might be distracted by relationships, maybe earning money, maybe distracted even by relationships in relation to your spouse, pleasing your children, and on and on and on. You know what I think is one way to help work to strengthen this single-minded devotion to Jesus so as to protect your heart from entanglement with the world? I think it's to take stock of all that you have in this world and then to get into the practice of thinking what the Lord wants you to do with it. Right? Many Christians know everything we have is of Jesus Christ. We, we say this and pray this every single Sunday usually. Uh, in the pastoral prayer, when we're praying towards the offering, Lord, we recognize that everything we have comes from you, even our very breath, certainly our finances, everything, all of our material goods, everything comes from you. We certainly know that. It's evident in Scripture. We pray this regularly. Many of us know this. But if we realize that everything is from Christ, and we realize that Jesus is the Lord, that he is the Savior, that he is the King, King over us, enlisted all of us, into a service, if we're Christians, then we know that everything we have is for Christ. Not only does all of your money come from Christ, but all of your money is for Christ. It means that he wants us to use it for him and his cause. He wants us to think of of anything, right? He wants you to use that thing, to enjoy that thing, to deploy that thing, to steward that thing, with eyes towards pleasing the one who enlisted us. Think of your homes, right? The apartment God has given you to live in. Ask yourself and pray, Lord, how would you, the Lord, who has given this apartment to me, how would you have me steward it so that I would rest appropriately and not be a workaholic? So that I would exercise hospitality because you command me to love the stranger and others? So that I would create a home for those who lack a strong sense of ties towards other people here in this church. Think about the money you have, whether it be little or much. The money God has placed in your care so that he would steward, so that you would steward that. Ask and pray, how can I, Lord Jesus, how can I steward your money for you and your purposes? Not only by providing for myself, but also providing for others. That's what Ephesians says. We no longer steal, but we work. Why do we work? So that we could share it with others. Share with those in need, seeking to be a blessing to those in need. I wonder if you do that. You ever ask that question? Do you ask Lord Jesus, the King, the Lord, who's given me all things, how would you have me steward these things for you and your purposes? Or do you only think about Christ's money for your own purposes? The relationships that Christ has given you. Do you ever ask yourselves, how do I best steward all of these people around me for Christ's sake? So that they live for Christ and his cause. I encourage you to think about that more. Just think, stop for a moment and think about if you don't ever think about that. If you are selfish, let's say. You don't ever think about Jesus and his purposes in relation to relationships. If you're selfish, then you will always use people for your purposes. Or let's say you, you struggle with the fear of man. Then you will always treat other people as if they are gods over you. That's not true. Instead, God has placed you in the relationships he's given you, the people all around you, so that you would help steward them and deploy them in all of their gifting, and all of their resources for Christ and his kingdom. It's super exciting to think about when you think about it that way. God has given me all of these things that I might steward them appropriately for his glory. Of course, we haven't even touched on the subject of what we ought to buy. You know, you could go on and ask the same questions Determine whether or not, or just choose, determine whether or not something is wise to buy or not. I know you guys just are coming off of Black Friday deals, uh, entering into the Christmas season, season. But such questions like, Lord, how would you have me steward this? How would you have me enjoy this, right? Christians can still enjoy things. Lord, how would you help me have me deploy this? Asking those types of questions will help commit everything we have in service of Jesus Christ. As he is the one who's given us everything. Let me encourage you, Christian, as you enter into every sphere of your life, imagine entering into your home, the family room right there, the TV right there, the couches you have right there, at least I'm thinking about my own house, the kitchen I have right there, the dining table I have, the pool that we have, by God's grace, has given us, the little basketball hoop, too, that we have there. How can we be stewards of all of those things for Christ and his purposes? It's similar like in Romans, right? If you guys remember Romans, there we are encouraged to offer up our bodies as instruments of righteousness. And uh, there I think it spurs us on to pray over our eyes. How do we use our eyes for the righteousness of God? How do we use our hearts for the righteousness of God, our hands for the righteousness of God, our feet? And then even doing so helps us keep us from sin because if I'm watching something I shouldn't be watching, I'm not using my eyes for the righteousness of God. We do the same things with all the stuff that God has given us, whether little or much. Timothy and all Christians are called to be fully committed, being single-minded, devoted to Jesus Christ, not entangled to the stuff of the world. Second, Christians are called to be persevering. Second, Christians are called to be persevering, aware of what Christ calls us to. Persevering, aware of what Christ calls us to. Look there, verse 5. Paul uses this uh, athletic analogy, so he's employing a different analogy. He changes, speaking proverbial wisdom, he uses athletic analogy, calling Timothy and all Christians to persevere. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. In Paul's day and age, if you were to sign up for a race, you would have had to, shown yourself, proved yourself. You would have to sign up for basically 10 months of serious athletic training prior to the race. That could be exactly what he's referring to. We're not really sure. But nevertheless, uh, the point is clear. If you don't practice, you can't enter. If you don't enter, you won't be crowned. The rules of the game require one to do a certain something. If you don't practice, you can't enter. If you don't enter, you won't be crowned. The crown here is the crown of salvation, the crown of righteousness, which Paul mentions there in uh, chapter 4. This is salvation in Jesus. So if one desired the end goal of being crowned, you have to do life within the rules or the standards. So Paul calls Timothy and all Christians to such perseverance, knowing full well the conditions in running the race of faith. And one expectation that Christ calls all of his followers to is suffering, actually. And not not every Christian will suffer the same way, but every Christian will to some degree go into battle and suffer Turn over to John chapter 15 and we see here. If you're sitting next to somebody who's exploring the Bible, who's new to the faith, just volunteer, help them get there to John chapter 15. And you see what Christ says to his followers. Super clear. John chapter 15. Just go ahead and look there at 18. Verse 18. It says there, if the world hates you, If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You see there, this is suffering for Jesus' namesake. And he's really clear. If they persecuted me, they will surely persecute you. In other words, as we apply this, you know, knowing that not all Christians suffer the same way, in general, suffering ought to be expected. It's just simply part of what it looks like to be enlisted, part of what it looks like to run the course of Christianity. Of course, other parts of Scripture affirm that Christians sign up for this battle and all of the suffering that comes with it. So take Ephesians chapter 6, for example. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. Ephesians chapter 6 speaks about the, the, running the Christian race or the fact that the Christian race is a battle. Of course, of course we had uh, you know, Timothy and really Paul who was suffering under Nero. So clearly, there is this battle against flesh and blood, but Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul actually says that there are spiritual forces behind such evil. He says there, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. You figure that would affect how we ourselves run the race of faith, right? Knowing full well that we wrestle against spiritual forces, that this is a battle and that we will, in fact, suffer, you figure, right, that we would anticipate um, what's going to happen in the race, all the different obstacles, all of our different challenges, and then we would be ready. We would be expectant. We would be prepared, having studied the course, knowing how exactly we are to run, the obstacles that are going to come, that Satan uses to trip, trip, Christians up and that we would also be aware of all of the tools and strategies Jesus has given his people so that his people would make it to the end our race of faith is like a spiritual Spartan race a spiritual Spartan race but instead of lasting three five or uh you know a 50k or something like that it lasts 20 30 60 80 years of your life So then the question is, do you, Christian, go about your race of faith knowing that you're entering into a battle with obstacles where Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, Peter says? Do you study God's strategies given to his people for spiritual warfare? As Tyler mentioned last week in the evening service, reading the word of God, praying to God, Fellowship with the saints? Have you studied how other Christians past and present have gotten tripped up? Have you studied how Satan, the enemy, works to do these things? Or if you look at your study and your preparation, might that reflect you approach the Christian life as an after-dinner evening stroll around the block? where we gently stroll along, going at our pace, without any impediments. God help us if we go into battle with that attitude. Who goes into the Christian life thinking that it's a cruise around the block? Who trains in perseverance for an evening stroll? If you expect the Christian life to be easy, friends, you realize that then at the first sign of difficulty, you'll give up. But if you adopt accurate expectations and then live in the reality of the fact that the Christian life is indeed a battle, as represented by Jesus, as represented by all of his disciples, as represented by millions of Christians throughout the ages, then you're going to be helped to persevere in fighting. Think about my friend who ran the Spartan race and the lessons that can be learned. Some degree of physical suffering is par for the course. Ask the martyrs. Finishing what he started requires sacrifices. Sacrifices of suffering, training, requires perseverance. And then challenging, or the challenge, or the suffering, and then experiencing and running through the obstacles is what is expected. Church, let me ask you, what are your expectations as you run after Jesus and run for Jesus? Are obstacles even on your radar? Certainly, friends, there is joy in Christ. There is peace that surpasses all understanding in Jesus. Certainly there is delight and pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. Certainly there is is, uh, salvation, definitely salvation. Don't need to pause on that one. What I meant to say was satisfaction being shepherded by the one true faithful shepherd that is Jesus. And of course there is salvation in Christ through his shed blood. But what about challenge? What about suffering? What about the metaphorical or physical bleeding on account of the faith? What about the obstacles that sometimes trip up the many? You know what helps us answer the question of whether or not these things are on the radar? It's to think back to the last time you suffered and how you responded. Think in your head right now, was the last time I experienced suffering and how did I respond? Whether for the faith or let's expand it and say suffering in general. Many respond with, why me? With a certain sort of temptation to bitterness. Some respond with shock or surprise even that they would even run into such suffering. Think about the diagnosis of a medical condition. Think about the same for yourself or a loved one in your family. Or you lose a child or you lose a job, the loss of that relationship, a divorce, perhaps. And in the moment, right, you feel as if you got that one-two punch combination to your face and your side that stops you in your tracks. That's what happened to me and my arthritis and the pain that came with it. Which, friends if you don't know, is going on. I'm entering into my third year of dealing with that, and I'm still wrestling with that, still trying to figure it out. I was discouraged, stopped in my tracks, and even what I've shared publicly is just a fraction, a little bit of what I feel, felt. The way I responded in that moment, as I look back to, helped me realize that suffering in the Christian life needed to be on my radar, all the more, all the more. You know how I know Because I started asking myself in the middle of the discouragement, what did I expect? Jeremy, what did you expect? It's a terribly revealing question that exposes false understandings and expectations. It's terribly revealing and exposing. What did you expect? Suffering, sure. But I didn't expect this much suffering and not in middle age life, right? I expected boldness, Right? Not intense pain that comes from gout that so happens to come on during middle age. I expected such things like maybe when I'm 60 or 70 or even 80 years old. And even when I felt like I was going to die, which literally I felt like I was going to die because the pain was that excruciating and mentally I was not I was struggling as well. When I expected death, you know, I did expect death, but not for a few more decades. What unrealistic expectations. I knew biblical truth. I know that sin and death entered into the world on account of sin. That's what the book of Romans says. Ever since Adam and Eve, all people, no matter where they are from, no matter what age they lived in, they die. As one pastor put it, death is the one thing we can be absolutely certain of. One out of one die. Not only did I know biblical truth, I knew knew in practical experience, right? Practical experience confirms biblical teaching. Has it ever been the case in human history where people have not gotten sick and died? No. Then here maybe is the more pertinent question for me or for many of us. Does anything exempt me from such suffering? Does anything exempt me from such suffering? Does anything exempt me from suffering to the degree that I did, to the age that I experienced it? No. The world is fallen. Everyone experiences the effects of sin on their own bodies. And with these truths, right, you can see that false expectations are adjusted. And we are helped to live in God's reality. The way that God sees everything. We can take our false expectations of scripture so that then they would be changed and made right. And then you embrace right expectations for life. But then there's another question that we should go on and ask ourselves. One that instills hope. One exposes, right, maybe idolatries, maybe some sin, maybe lots of sin. Then you go on and you ask another question that instills hope. What can I expect in Christ and his kingdom? What can I expect in Christ and his kingdom? Regarding sickness and death, which is a result of sin, Jesus has reversed the curse of sin and death. Praise God for that. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. We see this here. And we are going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What can I expect in Christ and his kingdom? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 53. The whole chapter is amazing, right? If you're struggling with physical problems, which is many of us. Suffering in general. Persecution, absolutely. You see here, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about The hope that we have given, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Talks about the implication is that all who are in Christ will follow in his train. You look there at 1553. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. All because of the resurrection of Jesus. 54 when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in his resurrection, Christ has defeated sin and death such that death and sting has been vanquished. That's the reality. We looked at sin's reality, yeah, but here's the the reality in Jesus. How does this reality help us, friends? How does this reality help us, friends? Look there, 58. You look there. What's the implications for our lives given the resurrection of Jesus? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He will bring it to fruition. He will finish it. You see how that works? Living in God's reality, not only in the effects of sin, not only in the sin that we cause, but then also living in Jesus who vanquishes sin and death. So you see that we worked that out for suffering in general, and we apply the same for suffering in the faith. If ever, friend, you are called to suffer for Christ, and some of you guys have certainly experienced mockery for Jesus Christ. Some of your family, you know that in family gatherings are going to give you difficulty here. If you are ever called to suffer for Christ, even from your family and close friends, right, perhaps you are discouraged. You can ask yourselves, Jeremy, what did I expect? And maybe after wrestling with the question, trying to come up with the answer, you honestly conclude, I expected that the world would treat me differently than it did Jesus. I thought that the world would love me, even though they did not love Jesus. What does scripture have to say about that? John 15, 20 again. Remember the the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Remember also Romans chapter 8. Even though there is such difficulty, there is hope in Jesus Christ. As nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God, even persecution. And not only that, but what does Christian experience, Christian history have to say about whether Jesus is right about this suffering? Has it ever been the case where Christians around the world live for long, consistent periods of time... Without persecution and suffering for Jesus Christ, not really. Christian experience, past and present, affirms that as it went for our Lord, so it goes for many of his followers. Right, so with these answers, we got our false expectations adjusted, conformed to the reality that we find in, in Scripture. And that reality, the hope in Christ, amidst all this difficulty helps us remain steadfast in perseverance, fulfilling our service to our Savior. So, friends, knowing that that is par for the course, knowing that suffering for the faith is par for the course, and suffering in general, living in a sinful world, it helps us lace up our ultra boosts of faith, so to speak, because we are not in it for a joy ride, but for our marathon of the Christian race. Let me encourage you to start asking yourself those questions of suffering. What did you expect? And by God's grace, what we expect, or sorry, and by God's grace, what can we expect and anticipate in Jesus Christ? And let me encourage you too to invite other people to ask you those questions. Right? If you invite people to ask you those questions, it's a whole lot easier. Because if I turn up to Dave and be like, "Dude, what did you expect?" Right, number one, that could be taken wrongly. It's just harder. So I say, David, why don't you ask me what I'm stuffing? Can you ask me with love and gentleness, Jeremy? What did you expect? And it just it's such an exposing question, such a helpful question. Another thing for uh, to help us strengthen our perseverance um, is to learn from other people. Is to learn from other people. Now we could talk about learning from people in the church, which I strongly recommend. Right, if you're t- if you know people who have health health issues. Let me encourage you to approach them and talk about their experience and how they remain faithful, because let me encourage you and let me remind you, that is your future. That is your future. But because uh, I so rarely get the chance to talk about this one way to encourage ourselves, let me do that now. Let me encourage you to read Christian biography. Hey, any of you guys who aren't readers, read Christian biography. whether you are reading Augustine in 4th century North Africa, whether you're reading about Charles Spurgeon in 19th century England, it helps us look across the centuries and throughout the ages to the giants of the faith. And we are able in Christian biographies to see their joy, their delight in Jesus, their strength to live for Jesus Christ, their diligent perseverance in the faith, and most importantly, their Christ who sustained them. This massive volume, friends, is by John Piper, and it's entitled Servants of Sovereign Joy. This is not just actually one story. There are 21 stories of people in here, okay? 21 biographies, relatively short biographies with relatively large print for you to enjoy. Um, and it, has, it speaks about all sorts of Christian figures, whether they be pastors or missionaries, so, friends, let me encourage you, right? Sacrificing the cost of seven green tea lattes or whatever you enjoy, you can get to know your ancestors in Christ in hard copy. $35. Or you can continue enjoying your frappuccino. And over your frappuccinos, you can download it for free. You can get together with other Christians and be encouraged by Christian biography. You can go download it, desiringgod.com. Just search John Piper, Servants of Sovereign Joy. You can ask me at the back of the door, at the back there, if you want the title. And you can download it for free. Let me encourage you to get it, to find someone, find a few people in the congregation, read it together with them, and be encouraged in your own perseverance towards completing the race as you look forward to being crowned, Lord willing, crowned by Jesus Christ with the salvation he has given you in full. How are we to be fully committed, being single-minded, persevering? And then third, actually, let me just back up a little bit. Let me back up. So uh, learning from other people. Let me touch on uh, learning from others here in the church. Uh, You know, in this day and age, in this particular church, actually, in this particular church, there aren't many people who die regularly, right? If we are in, let's say, Beaumont, where there are senior citizen housing centers all around the church there, Fellowship in the Past Church, that supports us. A lot of people die, and they they lose their life and go on to enjoy eternal life with Jesus. One marvelous, wonderful homecoming where there is not only great grief, but great celebration as well. In those moments, everybody is reminded that death does not exclude anyone. But it is coming for you one day, because we all live in this sinful world. The last burial we had here was at least maybe five years ago. We haven't buried anyone in the church in a very long time. But just imagine that cycle, right, is missing for us, which means for us a regular reminder is missing. So, friends, let me encourage you. For those of you who don't know, maybe don't know what that's like at all, if you wanted to, I'll go with you. Me and Melanie will take you to go and visit Melanie's mother and father's grave. And you'll see there real grief, right? I think about it makes me emotional right now. You want to think about Christians who have left the world to join Jesus and the grief that's present right now? We'll go and we will celebrate Melanie's mom and dad. We'll tell you guys funny stories and their quirkiness and how they encouraged us in the faith. We can do the same with my mom. So if you've never experienced that at all, you've never experienced anybody dying in your, in your life, let me encourage you like, hey, I'll help you. We'll go, we'll go mourn together and celebrate together. That's a really good thing. Again, those who have gone before us, it's really important to learn from because that is your future. Health problems, that's you in only a moment. Not being able to travel, that's you. Suffering pain, that's your future. Discouragement from relationships, that's you. But friends, what, how amazing is it that salvation, joy in Jesus, delighting in Christ, satisfaction under Christ, our shepherd, that's also us too as he is our marvelous savior. How are we to be fully committed? Being single-minded, persevering. Number three, being patient. Once again, Paul employs another analogy, this time a farming metaphor. Verse seven, look there. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Encouraging Timothy, holding out this hard-working farmer analogy. What seems to be highlighted is not only the diligent working, similar to perseverance running the race, uh, not only the eventual reward—we already talked about the crown—but the patient working, the patience required to work in this in-between time. That—that that is what I think uh, is highlighted here in this metaphor. One day, the work will be—we will see the work's fruit in full. One day after the tilling of the soil, after the planting and watering of the seed after the cultivating and caring for the plant, after the long-awaited harvest, then, then we will share in the crops. Now, some have, in, in seeking to understand, some have pressed this analogy, this language of first share, and this. what does it mean for Timothy, the pastor, to have the first share, and does the pastor now have the first share, and in what sense? I don't actually think there's any need to do that, so I'm just not going to do that. I think Paul here is just using this farming analogy, Giving the implication, hey, just as certain as the reward was for the hardworking farmer, so it is certain for the hard work of the pastor and the Christian in general. A reward will indeed come. It is so, we can be so confident that the reward will come. Here's this farming metaphor analogy to make the case. The implication is, giving how certain it is, persevere with patience and you will reap the reward. What are these rewards? Or for one, it's seeing God's grace, having a front line, front seat, first seat vision of what it looks like for God to work and unfold his salvation history. Look what Paul says in just a few verses later in verse 10. Um, Certainly this is on his mind, I think, as he writes here about this perseverance. Verse 10, he says there, I endure. I am single-minded for Christ. I persevere for Jesus with patience. I endure everything the sake of the elect that with the purpose of with the aim of that he says that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory that's reaped rewards right there that others would receive in full what we Christians have received that is salvation Joy in Christ. When others are brought into the joy of Christ, we too share in that joy. That reward is in the present, certainly. But there is also reward in the future. This future reward. Now, I don't know exactly what this will be like. It's not detailed out to the nth degree in Scripture. But I imagine that at that point in time, when we receive the crown of salvation, when we receive, when we hear Well done, good and faithful servant. I imagine we might see the fruit of our ministry, that God might by his grace reveal wisdom, let us into, give us fruit from our ministry in ways beyond our expectation. When we might know that we were used in ways we weren't even aware of, all by God's grace. And maybe then, we will understand God's plan of salvation, not from the vantage point of the now only, but from the vantage point of the end. In all of that glory, knowing that God has, before the foundations of the world, elected his people. In his love, he would accomplish salvation for his people. And in his strength and power, he would accomplish salvation for his people and preserve his people for the salvation that he has granted them in Jesus Christ. We get to see that which stems from eternity past. We get to see that from the vantage point of the end and Christ who reigns over it all. With greater understanding and knowledge, knowing more of God's wisdom, I think then we will be moved to greater worship, sharing in the fruit of the ministry, not in any proud way. We share in the fruit of the ministry, giving all the glory to Christ because he uses broken vessels like us. In light of the eternal salvation of souls, in light of honoring Jesus Christ and being used by God's grace in his great work of salvation, whatever suffering we experience now will pale in comparison to the joys of our Savior. And in fact, I think we're going to glory in our suffering as it is the very sufferings of Jesus Christ. Just as we know now, according to Scripture, it is worth it. So we will know fully then when we are face-to-face with Christ who suffered for us and for our salvation. Let us then persevere with patience, running for the reward. To conclude here, Timothy and Christians are to be fully committed. How? Being single-minded, persevering, and by being patient. These are the words of wisdom that Paul wants Timothy and all of us to treasure in our hearts as we run this race. Like a father figure writing the Proverbs, so Paul encourages Timothy there, the last verse there, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He's not saying he's going to have some sort of mystical you know, revelation experience of some sort of new revelation. Paul laying out proverbial wisdom in these analogies encourages Timothy just to seek wisdom. Not from the world, not from worldliness, but from the Lord. As Proverbs 2.6 says, the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Timothy and all Christians are not just to think about things. We are, though, encouraged to continue in the way of wisdom to think about the Lord's things. To continue in the way of wisdom and the fear of the Lord. Being fully committed to Christ with the aim of pleasing our master and commander, that is Jesus Christ. So as chapter 2 verses 1 to 7 exhort us, stand fast. Being strengthened by Christ. Passing on the gospel of Christ. And then as we saw today, being fully committed to Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that a fruit of the Spirit is patience and self-control and discipline and hope and faith and perseverance because we know, Lord, that apart from the Spirit of Jesus Christ, we could not do these things. Lord, we thank you that you are, in fact, the Lord, the one who goes in front of us, ahead of us, and the one who is with us. Lord, we pray that you would sustain us. And even for those here who do not quite know intense suffering, Lord, we pray that they would be aware that one day they too will suffer somehow. Lord, we ask that you would help prepare them, that you would help prepare them By letting them see more and more of the joy that is in Jesus Christ. So much so that they would, like Paul, know that suffering for Christ is worth it. And that they would be happy to count all things as loss for the sake of knowing and being known in Jesus Christ. For those here, Lord, who understand suffering, who are intimately acquainted with, in many ways, such darkness and dark experiences... Lord, we pray that you would be holding on tight to them. We ask you, Lord, that you, the God of all comfort, would let yourself be known again in a fresh new way that you are a God who holds tightly to them. We pray, Lord, that in such darkness, they would see the light of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ and have such boldness to face the challenges that they experience right now, knowing, Lord, that you use. Such difficulties, though they are difficult, to sharpen our faith, to help us cling to hope, to help us trust in the things that last. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you are the Lord. And as your word says, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will gently carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases in strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. We thank you, God, that our help comes from you. In your name we pray, amen.